0: Good morning, family. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. Today we're going to be reading verses 17 through 26. Did I turn this on? Yes. Okay, good. Just making sure. I didn't have Larry waving at me, but Larry's not up there, so you never know. <laughs> He's, okay, so if you're wondering why the background of the PowerPoint is bacon-wrapped shrimp... Just stick around, okay? It's, just, it's not to make you hungry. That may be a side effect. But um, but don't worry, today is not going to be a really long sermon. I know some of you are so concerned about that. That's a joke. Nobody really cares. But anyway, uh, lately we've had a couple of one-off sermons um, that have been kind of mixed in the last few weeks. And so I'd like to give a, a quick reminder of where we were before we did the one-off sermons while the kids are doing the bingo pictures here. Uh, the beginning of this chapter contained the last leg of Paul's return trip. Okay, at the tail end of his his third missionary journey. And you may recall that he had left Asia Minor and he was headed back to Jerusalem. Does anybody remember why he wanted to get back to Jerusalem? For what? He was trying to get back by Pentecost. Pentecost. You're close. Passover is 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 very close. And on the way back, he had a quick meeting with a group of elders in a place called Miletus. They were the, the elders of the church at Ephesus. And then he stayed after that for several days with Philip the Evangelist in Caesarea. Uh, and while there, it was prophesied that by a guy named Agabus, uh, it was prophesied that, uh, that Paul was going to be imprisoned if he went to Jerusalem. And that did not deter him because that was his plan. He knew that God had called him to that. And so he went ahead and went to Jerusalem anyway. So we're going to pick up in verse 17 uh, with Paul and company having gone the 70 or so miles from Caesarea into the holy city. Uh, And so in preparation, let's just, let's bow. We'll ask God to bless this message. God, I thank you for this group of people that's here this morning. Father, I thank you for um, those who are are out sick today. Uh, Just, I pray, Father, that you protect all of them, help them to heal quickly, that they may be back with us soon. Um, Specifically, uh, just lifting up to you, uh, Andrew and um, Mary and Tammy and Sharon, and there's probably uh, probably a few, uh, Chris, Lord, um, we just pray that you, Help everybody to heal quickly because we want to have our our family together. We ask, Father, that as we go through this passage that you will speak to us, Lord. Speak to us through your word. Speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, we we want to be good soil, so please just till us, break us up, pull our weeds, Father. We pray that you will remove the rocks and stones. And if there's any hard pack there, break it up, Lord, that we might be receptive soil because we want these seeds to take root and bear fruit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, as we read this following narrative, this is both a meeting of the minds in the early church, and it's also kind of a who's who among first century Christians. It's kind of neat here. Um, I want you to see if you notice how much of what occurs in this text is done for the sake of others, okay? When they had come to Jerusalem. Excuse me, it's we. I said they, but it's we. This is actually Luke writing in the in, uh, plural first person. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Who are the brothers? Who? Peter and the disciples. Sure, it's the church. It's believers. Uh, It's not a reference to actual siblings, but to siblings in Christ. On the following day, Paul went in uh, with us to James, and all the elders were present. Now, when Luke says all the elders, this probably should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, uh, because Sometimes we, we see the word all in Scripture, and, and we go, well, what is does that literally mean all the elders in the whole world? Obviously not. He's referring to just the elders of the church of Jerusalem. Okay? Now, who is James? The Lord's, brother. The Lord's half-brother, right. Okay? He was the uh, same, same mom, different dad. Um, you know, Jesus obviously had God as his father, and um, James had Joseph as his biological father. Uh, it's really interesting to me, that James didn't initially believe in Jesus. You may be aware of that. Um, it's really neat as you go through scripture, you see that, that Mary and, and some of the sons, uh, some of her sons actually uh, from Joseph, did not believe in Jesus. Mary probably did. We don't know for sure about Mary, but we know that his brothers did not believe in him. We see that in the Gospel of John. And so as they go and, and, uh, and, and try to, to pull him away from the crowds because, like, hey, he's nuts. We got to get him home. there's something wrong? He's like, no, 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 my mother and brothers are those who, you know, who hear God's word and obey it. Um, and, and he's, but as he speaks to them, James did not believe until apparently after the resurrection, because we read in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus showed up and appeared to James after his resurrection. It's going to be really hard for James not to believe at that point. <laughs> so there was obviously a change of heart. There, uh, but anyway, after greeting them, he, that's Paul, related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they, that's James and the elders of the church of Jerusalem, when they heard it, they glorified God. Now there are three out of four main points to today's message right here in this paragraph. Okay? So we see initially that uh, there's a group of Christians that are receiving another, gl- uh, another group gladly, and, it, and it's good for us to recognize, I think, the inherent grace in that, because we are called, as followers of Jesus, we're called to receive one another in the Lord. Now, what does that mean, to receive one another? What is receiving something? To accept something, okay? Yeah, to, to bring something unto oneself, a thing or a person, to accept it. And one of the ways that Christians are to express the love of Christ is to receive others, and especially those who are of like precious faith. Now, with slightly different wording, um, we see Paul instructing the believers in Rome to do the same thing. Um, you know what? Why don't you take your Bible, flip to Romans. We're going to go to chapter 15. Um, it's just a few pages ahead from Acts, right? We're going to go to Romans chapter 15. We're going to look at verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, that, that word welcome and the word receive are extremely similar. So, I want to ask you this question Brother, sister, how did Christ welcome you? He died for us with open arms. Who said that? that you? Thank you. With open arms. What? While we were yet sinners, Romans 5.8, very good, Christ died for us. He accepted us in this way, with open arms. He loved us unconditionally. Now, that's important for us to remember. And, and I, I want to say this very clearly, because we've had this conversation a couple times, but some of you are new, some of you, we all have short memories, we're goldfish, I know, okay? But, but the fact is, okay? God does not accept us as we are. He loves us as we are. He accepts us as Jesus is. You understand that? That is the only way He can accept us. That is why we must be justified by grace through faith. He accepts us as Jesus is. So, did Jesus, I want to hear a yes or no from you guys. Did He love you on the condition that you get your act together first? No, of course not. Okay. Likewise, we are called to extend the right hand of fellowship and the grace of God to one another, even if we have some fairly significant differences in our culture, our practice, even our understanding. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking that point right now because I think all the rest of these points kind of bleed over into that one. Bless you. If we choose not to be welcoming, towards someone who is, who is a legitimate brother or sister in Christ, how are we reflecting the kingdom of God? Love it. Who said that? Yeah. Poorly, somebody said. <laughs> poorly. We're reflecting the kingdom of God poorly if we're not accepting another person that appears to be a legitimate Christian. Now, this is not to be confused with receiving a person who claims to be a Christian and is clearly teaching a false gospel or dangerous theology, okay? John's third epistle makes it very clear that we must not welcome someone like that. We must not receive them, particularly into our homes, okay? But in the case of those who hold to the gospel of Christ and who exhibit the fruit of love for others, we should receive them, and honestly, I think we should expect them to receive us as well. Now, secondly, I want you to note Luke's phrase that Paul related one by one what the Lord had done. I think it's instructive that we make every effort to relate what God is doing, to relate the things that we see God doing around us because, friends, he is constantly at work. I think think sometimes we tend to forget that. He is constantly at work. You know, experientially, uh, I I think we human beings are very forgetful. I made the the goldfish comment a few minutes ago, but, but you've ever uh, maybe heard the illustration, the guy is coming to feed his his goldfish, and every time he comes over to the tank, they scatter. You know, they go to the other side, ah! and then he gives them some flakes, and they're like, oh yeah, food, and they come up and eat it, and then if he comes back a minute later, they're Phew, again, right? Because they're terrified. That's how people are. We are so, so quick to forget what God has done and what God is doing. You know, those of us who are reading through the, the Bible app together uh, this year, we, we we've spent a long time in the book of Numbers, it's almost over, folks. <laughs> okay, We've spent a long time. Half of that book is fascinating, and the other half is just lists. <laughs> and it's, uh, but there's, there's a lot in that book that applied to the nation of Israel in a way that it doesn't apply to us. You know, the sacrificial law, some of the ceremonial stuff. But, and, and some of it, I admit it, can make your eyes glaze over a little bit if you're a Gentile on this side of the cross. But the history portions are awesome. They are both... I said fascinating, yes, but they're also terrifying. Why? Because the people of Israel tested God over and over again, and they behaved foolishly and faithlessly and ungratefully. And as a result, he took them out in some pretty creative ways in the wilderness until an entire generation was gone. Now, I think most of us have read through these passages, and we see how they're behaving, and they're they're we read about their complaining, griping, we read about their rebellion, and we think, what's wrong with these idiots? Why why do they keep on trying to reject God's authority and provision? I mean, didn't he just lead them out of Egypt? And now they're they're worshiping a golden calf? They're mooing and bleeding about the, the manna. Oh, we wish we had our fish and cucumbers and leeks and blah blah blah. We hate this disgusting man. You know, the fact is, we are a forgetful race. And I think part of the reason reason this history must be remembered, it must be retold, is that the bad parts can happen again. We need to know this so that they don't happen again, and also because the good parts encourage us to keep going. You know, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul even He says that that all these things that happened to the Israelites in the wilderness serve as examples to us. Basically, uh, examples of what not to do. So anyway, to get back on point, it's really important to relate what God is doing. It's good for Christians to share triumphs with other believers. You know, both the the personal victories in our lives and, and the corporate ones that are happening within the body of the church both locally and, and, you know, and with a capital C, the, the worldwide church. Um, I think God is working every day among us, and, and we, we have the opportunity to share with others what we're seeing. So I'm going to give you a couple of practical examples here. Um, there was a time when sharing testimonies was a thing in the church, and maybe we ought to bring that back, actually, uh, because it can be so encouraging to hear what God is doing in another person's life. And, and while testimonies can include another, you know, the person's individual salvation story, uh, that's not all it has to be. You know, God is good in a whole lot of other ways. He's, he's good in how he sanctifies, not just in how he justifies. You know, maybe he's enabled you to kick an addiction, or, or he's pulled you through a terrible trial. You know, maybe he's, he's saved a, a family member, Uh, you know, through you. He's helped you to reach someone that's lost. Perhaps it's even just a comment on on a blessing that God has provided you with lately. You know, a new job or, uh, you know, just a special, you know, passing a test, whatever the case may be. Something that's obviously his hand at work is good to share with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And the other key to this, this is not incidentally, is to give glory to God for all the good. I mean, James 1 says, every good and perfect gift comes from where? From above, from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadow. Give glory to God. Remember, remember, this is really important, especially when you're giving a testimony. You didn't find Jesus. (laughs) Jesus found you. He's not hiding. Jesus found you and every good thing you have is from the Lord, including the stamina to endure difficult circumstances. You know, one of the um, the worst things that you can do, I think, when you feel like God is distant, is to presume that you're clawing your way uphill on your own. There's a there's an illustration. Kyle Eileman wrote a great book called Not a Fan. I think there's a couple copies of it out there in the um, in the bookshelf. If anybody wants to grab one and take it home, his. His father was the, the president of Ozark Christian College, and he ended up being at a big church in um, Missouri. Anyway, hilarious guy, hilarious guy, very smart. And he has this illustration. He's trying to move this ginormous piece of furniture in his office, trying to get it from one side to the other. And so his uh, four-year-old son, four-year-old runt? What, what was I going to say there? His, his four-year-old son uh, comes over and says, oh, Dad, let me help you, right? So he, so he helps. <laughs> he jumps in and starts pushing And and helping. And at one point, the little boy looks up at him and says, Dad, can you move out of the way so I can do it? (laughs) I mean, this is silly and cute when a person's four, but when you're a grown man or woman, it's just plain silly. (laughs) We need God every step of the way. And He does not abandon His people. Every good thing we accomplish is a gift. From God, Even even the great apostle Paul, he's probably the greatest Christian missionary that ever lived. He doesn't presume to tell the church in Jerusalem about all the good that he accomplished. Instead, he related to them one by one, it says, the things that God had done. And we gotta be the same way. In, in, in that same vein, uh, I wanna just, friends, let, let me share just a little bit with you about what God has done in my own life and in the life of this church, okay? This, I've seen my own prayer life and the prayer life of this church drastically increase. And it's awesome. It started, I think, with Dave suggesting that the elders pray over the church prayer list in our Sunday meeting. This was probably a year or two ago. And, and we've been doing that by name. If you're on that prayer list, we pray for you on Sunday mornings. And then last fall, the Lord convicted me to start waking up about an hour and a half earlier on the days that I take Evie to school uh, so, so I can spend time in the Word and in prayer. And that's been amazing. And then Joyson had this incredible visit, and, and and all of us, I think, were convicted about faith and prayer by his visit, all of us that were here to hear him. And then around the same time, uh, my workout group, a bunch of guys that get together you know, three times a week, now four times a week. We, we pray. We started praying every time we get together. And we have a, a whiteboard of lists, and we're going through that, and... And, uh, and praying for each other. And then the elders, we began praying for everyone in the church in our elders' meetings. We bring in the, the directory with the pictures, and we pray over the individual pictures of, of these people. And, and then around this the same time that that started, God led Dave and Mary to spearhead a truck campaign for glory, and uh, glory ministries, which was not only successful, but God helped us to raise more than three times what we were initially aiming for, which is awesome, You know, both from sources within the church and without the church. And Dave, again, uh, felt led to suggest, hey, we should have a Tuesday night Zoom. So we've been having a Zoom prayer meeting, even though he hasn't been there for half the time because he's a heathen. We've been, uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, pray for... <laughs> but we've been doing that for several weeks on Tuesday nights, and, and I believe that this direction is a gift from God. It's not something that we came up with but it's something we're trying to be faithful in. And it's awesome to see what God is doing. And since the beginning of last, just last November, we've seen four baptisms. We've had three new families join the church. And I know, not bless you, I know not everyone is aware of, of all these blessings. Not everyone has seen this large increase in prayer, but I want you to know God is working here. There's a lot going on behind the scenes. And the Lord, he's behind it, he's in front of it, and he's all around it, he's in it and through it. God is doing this we got to relate what God is doing, friends. we got to tell people. And speaking of giving glory to God, we see, we see the church in Jerusalem did exactly that when they heard Paul's exciting news. It, it reads like they were just filled with joy, you know, to hear about what God was doing. And uh, I think that's another important, uh, important, port. <laughs> important point for us. We ought to rejoice in God's work in others. We rejoice in what he's doing. I think, I think most Christians are probably pretty good about this. You know, I think true Christian, Holy Spirit bought by the blood of Christ Christians will rejoice with those who rejoice and will mourn with those who mourn. I think that's something that we, we do kind of by second nature because God's nature in us is helping us to do that, as James wrote in his letter. But, but we're also human beings, right? And so sometimes we find ourselves asking, you know, why does so-and-so get all the blessing? You know, I'm still struggling with a, a sinful habit, or I'm, I'm still dealing with, with grief. Where's my breakthrough moment? We have to guard against that kind of thinking because it's that kind of stuff that can rob us of joy. It can can cause us to be discontented with our lot in life. And here's something, I I think you can take this to the bank. One of the best ways to experience joy in our, our own individual lives is when, especially when we're not feeling very joyful, is to rejoice in the victories of others. Even if you're not feeling it yourself, when you see what God is doing, you can still rejoice in the Lord's work. You can still see what's happening. But in order to see it, it's got to be shared. When we see the Lord at work in a brother or a sister or in a church, we ought to find joy in that. That ought to be something that, that makes our hearts leap in our chest because we see God at work Even though we know there's still so much work to be done, any of us, we can look at our lives and say, oh yeah, there's a lot of work that needs to happen here. But God is at work. He who began a good work in you will be what? Faithful to complete it, amen. I'm sure most of us are are familiar with that, you know. That's a powerful statement. It's a very comforting verse for many of us because we find ourselves struggling so often. I I do, anyway. Anyway. I struggle so often. And this is a wonderful reminder that God's not done with us yet. You know, we talked about it this morning in Sunday school. That, that How do you know when, when God's done with you? When you're on the other side of the grass, right? I mean, that's, that's, he's not done. If you're here, he's not done. Amen. He's not done. He's not done with us. And, and the key word there for, for, for this point is us. Because God is not only at work sanctifying you, sanctifying me, He is also at work in literally every single Christian on the planet. Do you understand that? It's very important for us to realize that because, because being aware, at least every, every justified person on this planet is being sanctified. And, and knowing this, it, it helps us to have the right attitude toward other believers. It gives, it gives us more patience. It gives us more tolerance of other people's flaws and it makes us want to encourage them toward greater sanctification. And I think we we all struggle with this at times, but rather than than being frustrated with where your brother or sister currently is, remind yourself, God is growing that person. Even if that person is you, remind yourself, God is growing that person And, and be as great of a force of edification in their life as you can possibly be encourage them, lift them up. All right. So there's only one more point, main point for today, but there's a lot, a lot more reading to do. (laughs) So before we get into it, uh, so I want to pick back up at verse 20. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So they're referring to Jewish Christians They are all zealous for the law, which, by the way, is not necessary, but it's a statement of fact, okay? And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Now, I want to pause for a second. Is that true? Has Paul been doing that? Yes. You say yes? Yes, sort Yes. Sort of. He's been telling them it's not required. Has Paul encouraged Jews to stop being Jewish? Okay, based on on all of the messages that we've read by Paul in in Acts and also in his letters, uh, I I don't see any evidence that he is telling Jews to stop doing Jewish things, okay? In fact, we learn elsewhere that Paul had Timothy get circumcised simply because he didn't want it to be a stumbling block for the Jews that he was ministering to, okay? Okay? That's quite a sacrifice for this young fellow, all right? And he was, though, teaching the Gentiles that they definitely did not need to follow the Mosaic law. He wasn't necessarily teaching the Jews that they shouldn't. I just wanted wanted to make that clear. He didn't tell the Jews, you should not follow the law. Anyway, we're going to keep going. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come, And as the Jews had previously been a problem for Paul, so now they're trying to offer a solution. He says, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Now, this is a really interesting paragraph to me. Um, we're going to get into the reason shortly, but, but for the sake of understanding what they're talking about, the Jewish Christians in the Jerusalem church weren't fond of Paul because they thought that he didn't live like a Jew and he was encouraging all the other Jews to not live like Jews, okay? And so the church elders were basically telling him to prove he's still Jewish to keep from offending the Jewish Christians. And that's why they told him, hey, engage in this purifying ritual, cover the expenses of these other guys. It was It was so that... He could be viewed uh, through rose-colored glasses, so to speak, by the Jews. On to verse 25. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You guys remember that from Acts 15? Okay. And Peter told the Jews at Jerusalem, or after Peter told the Jews of Jerusalem that God was including the Gentiles in his kingdom. Okay, you remember this? Um, they got really excited about that. That was really, the Jews were like, cool, Gentiles, all right, most of them. And the Gentiles were like, "Woohoo, we're also acceptable to God, right? So they were very excited until this group of Jews decided that Gentiles had to become Jews first before they could be Christians. And so they came down and they said, look, if you're not circumcised, you can't be saved. Those you remember those guys the judaizers? Okay. So Paul actually had to go to Jerusalem to tell them stop. Because that was that is a perversion of the gospel. Now what's kind of funny about this is that the elders of the church in Jerusalem were reminding Paul of the very letter that he was present for the drafting of, you know. I like to say, well we sent this letter. It's like Paul's probably like, uh-huh. I was there. He was part of the group that brought that letter to the Gentile church at Antioch also. So I don't know why, I don't, I'm not sure I have a feel for this part, honestly. I don't know why they said that, except maybe to make a point of this perceived difference between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. But I get what they were trying to do, okay? What, what was it that they were after? I think the church in Jerusalem wanted to remove any potential stumbling blocks between the Apostle Paul and the Jewish Christians, they didn't want to give believing Jews any reason to be offended. Why? I mean, if these, these Jewish guys, if they're believing something that's not necessarily right, why didn't the elders of the church just set them straight? This is important uh, distinction here. Okay, these, these Jews, these believing Jews, were not Judaizers. They weren't insisting that Gentiles become Jews first, in order to be saved. If they had been, Paul would have flat refused to have any part of it. Rather, what was happening is these these guys were Jewish Christians who had great zeal for the law, and so they were expecting Jewish Christians to follow the law, but they weren't pressuring uh, the Gentiles to follow it, nor were they saying that salvation was through the law. That's an incredibly important distinction. Okay? So, in order to avoid them being offended by Paul... James and the elders were trying to maintain uh, the the peace and the unity among believers by just asking or or telling, you know, do what we tell you. they're, they're, They're asking Paul to behave like the Jew that he was. So the question is, how do you think Paul handled that? And you might actually be surprised if you haven't read ahead. Verse 26 Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. He did exactly what they said. Why? Say it again. For their sake. For their sake. To keep from offending someone and causing them to stumble in their faith. What an amazing choice. And I think that generally speaking, we're called to behave in much the same way. I mean, Paul arguably could have decided he'd been living with the Gentiles long enough. He didn't didn't have to submit to what the church in in Jerusalem was saying, you know, the, the leadership. I mean, after all, he was an apostle every bit as much as James. And if anyone had freedom in Christ and a strong conscience, it would be the apostle Paul. Wouldn't you agree? If anybody would know. And yet, and yet, he humbly agreed to acquiesce, to go along with their request, despite despite the fact that it was morally unnecessary. And so I, I think we can learn from Paul's example here. If we want to remove any stumbling blocks to the faith and any stumbling blocks to fellowship within the body of Christ, we should learn to cultivate a humble attitude. There's that word. Cultivate. A humble attitude. This is so important to literally every aspect of life for the Christian, um, and not just to keep peace within the congregation. I want to ask you, turn with me to Ephesians 4. I'm going to go to Ephesians 4. If you have a, a Bible, turn there. If you have a phone, scroll there. I could put in book, bookmarks, but then it would take stuff to wait on everybody else, so he just... Find it with me. All right. Um, I want you to... You know, having a humble attitude is a valuable thing uh, within a marriage. Uh, It's important in parent-child relationships. It uh, comes in handy when you're dealing with coworkers, um, with fellow citizens, you know, but but it's an absolutely vital component for a healthy church. Paul wrote, starting in verse 1 of Ephesians 4, he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Being humble means suppressing your own rights for the sake of others. It means not insisting on your own way because love does not insist on its own way. I think there's a lot that we need to to recognize about what it means to bear with one another in love. It means being patient with the shortcomings of one another. You know, Paul, Paul could have refused on principle you know, to, to, he, he could have said, I have the freedom in Christ, I have a spirit-led conscience, and I can do whatever that can handle. But he didn't. He wrote a whole chapter in Romans about that. By the way, it's Romans chapter 14. If you want to look it up later, we're not going to go there right now. Uh, but, but he could have said, he could have said, you know, these Jewish believers need to get over it. They need to grow up. But he didn't. He refused to be a stumbling block for anyone. He, he chose not to assert his own rights for their sake. And this is what we ought to do, too. We should view one another as more significant than ourselves in that regard. You know, one of the clearest passages in Scripture about this was written by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2. I want to invite you to turn there also. Philippians 2, it's a very famous section there called the Carmen Christi, the Song of Christ. But before that, Paul gives some amazingly practical advice to the church, and I'm going to read part of that to you. And then I'd like you to kind of keep your thumb there. It's Philippians chapter two. I'm gonna start in verse one. He says, so, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You know, talk about a tall order. But you know, you know why that's so cool, though? Think about this. If everyone, if everyone in the body of Christ was looking out for everyone else in the body of Christ, you know, if we were striving to edify others, uh, if, we, if we were elevating them above ourselves, Think about how well cared for we'd all be. Right? Does it make sense? If everybody's looking out for number one, well, there's too many number ones. But if everyone was looking out for everyone else, we get taken care of. I want you to hang on to that passage just for a moment. We've got a couple more scriptures to visit real quick. Um, so if you would, put your thumb there. Flip over to... Well, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, that's where we am going to go. I think we're starting in verse 19. Uh, this is, while we look at this, this next subpoint. This, this is part of why the Apostle Paul was so effective at ministry. It's because he was willing to be all things to all people. Okay? And we ought to be the same way as long as it doesn't lead us into sin. So now the question is, what does it mean to be all things to all people? I want us to to look at the passage that phrase comes from. So this is 1 Corinthians 9. I'm not there yet. Starting in verse 19. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. I want you to think about it. You know, in other words, he had no problem behaving like a Jew when he was around the Jews, even if it curtailed his own freedoms. Why? Because it it kept people from being turned off to the gospel that he was preaching. And then he talks about with the Gentiles, being as a Gentile. In other words, he would be just like them because identifying with them tore down the barriers that traditionally kept Jews and Gentiles apart. He says, to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. So as long as it did not lead him into sin, Paul was willing to adjust his behavior if it would just mean that perhaps someone would find the joy of salvation in Christ. The the Jewish ex-Pharisee, Paul, would have have eaten bacon-wrapped shrimp Now you know. For the sake of others. If it's not a salvific issue, friends, have some faith. Have some tolerance for one another. Have some grace. Have some mercy. If it meant a Gentile might listen to the gospel, I think Paul would have undone any, anything he had to that would have made him ceremonially unclean as a Jew as long as it wasn't a sin. Now, eating bacon-wrapped shrimp would not be a sacrifice for me, <laughs> but it might have been for Paul, you know, for, for a lifelong Jew, but we have to say what a humble, what a humble and submissive attitude that, that he had. His own rights were, were far less important to him than the spiritual state of others. And not only was he willing to give up his his life to help people know Christ, he also gave a whole lot of his comfort and a whole lot of his freedom up so, so that less mature Christians wouldn't harm their consciences. Paul became all things to all people for their sake. And so, friends, let's learn from his example, which which he learned from Jesus Christ, to submit yourself for the sake of others. You know, Ephesians 5, Paul reminds the Christians, he says, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's not about asserting our rights. It's about placing ourselves below someone. That's literally the word hupotasso in Greek, which is translated submit, means to put oneself under It's placing ourselves below someone else in a posture of humility in order to help them know the Lord. Or if they already know Him, to help them know Him better. That, That is what we are called to do. And listen, friends, biblical submission is nothing to fear. In fact, I would go so far as to say it's a power move. It's a choice to place yourself lower in order that another person might be elevated, it's done for their sake. And when we do that, we are blessed to be like our king because Jesus came from heaven to earth. He submitted to his father's will so that by his death and resurrection, we might be forgiven our sins and given eternal life. And I want to wrap up the sermon. It's the same passage I ended with last week, but I'm going to ask you to join me this time in reading it out loud because these famous verses come right on the heels of the passage that we read earlier about considering others as more significant than ourselves. So will you read with me? starting with the same verse we ended with a moment ago. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with him a thing to be grasped. I'm ahead of you, sorry. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Ah, we lift You up, Lord. We thank You for Jesus. Thank you for the power that he displayed in submitting to your will that we might be saved. Give us the same courage and the same understanding of your will and its goodness and its perfection that we might submit to. Help us to follow the example of Paul as he follows the example of Christ. Father, I pray this morning if anyone here has not received Jesus Christ as their own true Lord and Savior, I ask, Lord, that you convict their heart now. Give them justifying faith. Draw them to yourself. I pray, Father, that anyone here whose heart is hardened, that you will soften it. I ask, Father, that they listen to the plea of the invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. If you don't know the Lord this morning, but maybe you're seeing that there's something to this and you're thinking, you know what? I think I do believe he is the son of God. He really did die on the cross for me so I could be forgiven. He really did rise from the dead. Friend, don't wait. Come today, confess that faith, be baptized according to what the word of God tells you to do. Walk faithfully. And you know, if you're here this morning and and you're like, hey, I've already done that. But you know what? I need prayer. I'm really struggling. My my uh, my heart is elsewhere. I've been putting something else on the on God's throne. If that's the case, listen. You you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Confess the sin. Let people lay hands on you and pray. If there's something else that you have that you desperately need prayer for, please come forward during this song. And if you're just if you're saying, you know what? I I've already I'm, I'm feeling like right now I'm feeling pretty great. and and I know God, I'm walking with Him, and I've done these things, That I've been baptized, and I've confessed my faith, and I'm trying to be obedient. But you know what? I don't have a church family yet. We're here to be your church family. We'd love to have you.